This program is brought to you from the Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. Nearly one week post midterm election and there are still unanswered questions in Wisconsin. Those Monday morning quarterbacks are still analyzing why Wisconsinites split their ballots while others are wondering if divided government will yield different results in the coming year. State Bureau Chief for Wisconsin Watch, Matt, Matt DeFore, and Wisconsin Public Radio's Capitol Bureau Chief Sean Johnson are now well rested from election night and ready to share their latest thoughts with us. If you could describe this midterm election in just a few words, how would you describe it? I, I would say it was less, less, almost more predictable than it should have been. Um, so kind of, kind of status quo, kind of boring in that sense. What you, a couple words, how would you describe that midterm election? Uh, I would say bucked trends would be like my couple words. You know, bucked if you want to look at uh, what usually happens when one party is in control of the White House and Congress and it's a midterm, they get punished. And you can't say that that happened in this election, not, not by a long shot. What would you say are your biggest takeaways when you're setting a week, a week out? What are your biggest takeaways from that election? In Wisconsin specifically, not a lot is going to change. You're still going to have a Republican-controlled legislature. They were uh, the Republicans um, heavily gerrymandered the state back in 2011, and they have a 60, now four-seat majority in the assembly. They didn't reach two-thirds, so they're still going to have to contend, though, with a Democratic governor. I think they were hoping to do a lot of changes with a Republican governor, Tim Michaels, but you know they still have to deal with a Democratic governor. And so divided government was the... It's the way it was, and it's the way it will be. Continued theme. What are your biggest takeaways? Uh, in terms of, like, where we are right now, or, you know, the, I guess in the results, biggest takeaways were just the, the power of Dane County for Democrats to just, I, I mean, it's just, a, I, I can't, like, overstate how powerful Dane County is becoming in statewide elections. Uh, it's just massively important. And then I think the eroding power of the suburbs as that kind of counterweight for Republicans. Those Milwaukee suburbs in particular. The Wow counties are still voting Republican, but nowhere near as much as they used to. Um, that to me is kind of the most interesting thing in this election. And it's not the first election that, it's, that that has happened, but it is a continued trend in the age of Donald Trump for Republicans, where you've seen Wisconsin suburbs, like other suburbs around the country, but you know we know Wisconsin's best and they are sliding toward Democrats continuously. And that, well, that was particularly true in the race for governor. Let's talk about that for a little bit. That also was a unique race because of how much money was spent on the governor's race. Why do you think it was, it was set national records for the most expensive governor's race? Why do you think so much money spent on that race? Well, again, this was a major um, like race for the Republicans that they had to win if they wanted to govern over the next four years. Um, they spent a record number amount of money 
Um, but you know, one of the things that I think that some of the commentators have noted is that Tim Michaels came into that race saying he was going to spend a lot of his own money the on that race. Self-funded candidate, right? And then he ended up spending almost twice as much money in just to beat Rebecca Clayfish in the primary than he did to uh, try to defeat Tony Evers, and was he came up far short, shorter than than uh, former Governor Walker when when Evers beat him back in 2018. So. Do you think if Tim Michaels had spent more money that he would have been able to compete, or was it about more than just? money in that race for the reasons why? I think money always helps. And so if, um, you know, you got both candidates spending equal amount of money, uh, you know, who knows where things would have been. I think there are larger trends at play, definitely. Um, but, you know, I, I think we always say that money's a factor in these races. And so why would this be any different? Uh, you mentioned in the primary uh, Rebecca Clayfish, who had been favored by many Republicans in the state and interestingly really wasn't out there campaigning for Tim Michael. Some, think, some people think with the focus on the abortion issue that a woman candidate would have made a difference. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not the outcome would have been different with Rebecca Clayfish as that candidate? I mean, she lost the primary. It's, it's hard to say whether she would have done better. Um, it's, you know, again, same thing on the, on the in the Senate where you, some people wonder if Sarah Gudlewski could have done better in the Senate uh, race. But the, the way I look at the Republican Party today, you've got the three T's. You've got the Trump Party, you've got the Tea Party, and you've got the Tommy Party. And it was sort of a, an alliance between the Tommy Party, uh, folks like Bill McCaution and you know, the sort of the, the, the older crowd of uh, Ryan's Priebus. Kind of Ryan's Priebus, for sure. Well, Ryan's is more of a part of, he's part of the Tea Party, too, right? So you have uh, the the Trump Party and the, the Tommy Party kind of aligned to nominate Tim Michaels. And Rebecca Clayfish, Scott Walker, that's the Tea Party. That's the core of that group. And, yeah, it didn't seem like they had, um, they were obviously behind Michaels, but maybe not as strongly as they could have been. And did that make a difference in the end? Maybe. Um, but the, the, the party's got that, t- you know, that, tug of war going on, which which of those sort of uh, pillars of their of their uh, party are going to win out. So, Would you point to any one thing in that governor's race? Do you think, does it go back to that Dane County factor as to why the outcome was, was the way it was for Evers and Michaels? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Dane and the suburbs are the big things for me. I think when, on election night, when, you know, and, and I could have got this wrong, but when I saw Waukesha coming in, Waukesha County coming in the way that it was, um, where Michaels was vastly underperforming what he should be doing as a Republican candidate, I thought that's it. That's the ball game, and it, I mean it did turn out that way. Uh, I think that's huge. And you know, would Rebecca Clayfish have done better in Waukesha County? I think she would have. Would she have potentially underpolled to Michaels in a lot of these rural counties where she didn't do as well in the primary and what we think of as Trump counties now? I think she would have. So I don't know that you could say that Rebecca Clayfish would have been the key that, you know, unlocked that election for Republicans because she had her difficulties elsewhere. Yeah. Well, and the idea that, the, the again, again, the Trump voters out there, if they had gone with Clayfish, would they have dropped off? I think, Sean, that's what you're saying, essentially. Yeah. And so I think they went with somebody who they thought the Trump voters and the, the old guard Tommy voters would support and that they assumed the Tea Party voters would come along with in the suburbs, and maybe that is where they, they fell down. So even though a lot of people think that the abortion was really kind of a key issue that turned and brought Democrats out, having a woman candidate on the GOP ticket maybe doesn't make the same difference on the Republican side? It, she would have been attacked with very similar negative advertising, I think. She has uh, a long record where uh, of, of opposing abortion um, and... You know, I, I don't know that it would have landed the same way that it did with Michaels. 
I think that issue motivated Democrats to get out, though. I mean, that's what that was out there for, to me, was to get those Democrats charged up for a midterm election when they might otherwise stay home, historically speaking. I think you also have to look at, you know, Tony Evers knows what he's doing in these races. He's won a couple now in divided Wisconsin. This one, while not a blowout, bigger than the last. And so there's also just the Evers factor. He has a brand, and he kind of knows how to use it. Yeah, the boring brand, as he, he calls and it. And he, he knows it, too. He, he talked about it in election nights. So and like, he did I'm, better than he did against Governor Walker four was, years ago. It was a Wisconsin too. blowout is what it was. Yeah, yeah I say three points. That's a Wisconsin blowout. We all go to bed, and uh, we know the outcome. <laughs> a Wisconsin blowout. Okay, let's, let's talk about the state legislature. You both have covered the maps and the redistricting um, to a great degree in your reporting. And if we Republicans did pick up a few seats in the state legislature, I think that was pretty predicted, strengthening their majority, but not quite achieving that supermajority, as you uh, referenced, Matt, which is what they needed to override a governor's veto. Republicans added one seat and now have a 22 to 11 majority in the state Senate. Assembly Republicans added three seats and now sit at 64 seats to 35 seats for the Democrats. Sean, You've spent a lot of time reporting on redistricting um, and the maps in Wisconsin. How much did the changes to those legislative maps really affect the outcome on last Tuesday? I think uh, in some of the districts, you can see they made them Republican districts and they behaved accordingly. You know, like the 13th Assembly District um, west of Milwaukee, that was a 50-50 district. That was going to be hard for Democrats to keep that seat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Under the map, I think, um, under the old map, it was really about 50-50 because of the way that those districts, um, suburban districts, trending toward Democrats, under the new map, it was, I think, plus 13 Republican. I think they ended up winning it by slightly more in that district. Actually, it was plus 16 Republican, and it went won it by 12. So uh, kind of an expected outcome there. They did win in uh, northern Wisconsin districts, the 73rd and the 74th, which are the not... The former Beth Myers and Nick Milroy seats. Yeah, and those have been uh, Democratic districts for a long time. Um, they are close by the numbers. They were close by the numbers under the old map, close by the numbers under the new map. So those are not like an example of gerrymandering, you know, flipping seats to Republicans. I think in the, that case, they won close seats in a part of the state that is going their direction, northern Wisconsin. Right, the, the 73rd, though, I mean, Angie Sapik, um, who won that race, um, this was a candidate we reported on who had a very pro-Trump, a very... Uh, her, her record on Twitter was, was interesting considering the political climate, and it's not surprising perhaps then that she deleted the entire Twitter history. So voters couldn't see that sort of uh, um, her rhetoric around January 6th and conspiracy theories. So she won by a very sl- slim margin. I think it was the second closest race in the state. Um, so do you think that's a surprising flip then, that particular seat, the 73rd? So I, I was, I was going to disagree with Sean. If you look at the maps for the 73rd, there was redistricting done to give the Republicans an advantage. If you look at some of the way it was drawn, Douglas County up there is a Democratic county. You always see, on even in the 2016 maps, those three counties up there in northwestern Wisconsin go Democratic, and they did for the governor um, in, in this uh, year's race. But they again, they kind of engineered it so that Burnett County, which is south of Douglas, which is much more Republican, is now a bigger part of that 73rd district. So 
I mean, it is going more Republican in that area, but um, I think there was some 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 map making going on as well. So, what do we know? Uh, you mentioned some of the new members. Do we know anything else about the kind of group of new members? Are do they lean more conservative? Does it make a difference in how Speaker Voss, who was just reelected as the Speaker of the Assembly, how he'll be able to govern? I I think he's been in a very strong position because he has taken up that sort of anti-Trump um, part of the party. Before the election, you know, he had he fired Michael Gableman from the uh, from this investigation that he had put together. Trump heavily went against him, and and it seems like the big loser from last Tuesday was Donald Trump. So I think he came into this uh, he comes into this next session with a, a the strongest Republican caucus in you know recent memory, um, and uh, pretty firm control. I think it's he there were people there were Trump uh, type candidates running in the primaries who lost, for example. Um, uh, Tyler August, I think, is majority leader now. Is you know he defeated a sort of a pro-Trump kind of candidate. So I, I don't think it's this you know really you know Trump sort of supporting Republican caucus in the assembly. It seems like it's much more Voss is in more control now than ever before. Do you think more of the same in the state assembly in terms of Speaker Voss's ability to wrangle votes for what he wants to move? Yeah, I I, I, I think so. I mean, in, in Speaker Voss's case, he really took on Trump. Directly, he, you know, uh, Donald Trump endorsed his primary candidate, uh, endorsed the same candidate, Adam Steen, and when he was a writing candidate. So Donald Trump's on the record saying, like, let's go get Robin Voss, and he came up short there. So I think that probably helps the speaker's hand. Um, I would just say, you know, I'm not extremely confident that it's not going to be another, you know, wild couple years for the speaker potentially, because I don't know that caucus, and you know, they're. It, there are it might new depend on who's running for president in 2024. Yeah, there are, and there are new people coming in there, and not everybody is going to feel like they owe their job to Robin Voss. You know, Speaker Voss is very active in a lot of these districts where they're going for pickups, and some of those members kind of owe their jobs to him. Others may not, and may not feel any obligation to him, and may feel more freely to feel more free to speak out against him. So. I do wonder, though, in that 73rd, for example, where the Republican Assembly Campaign Committee spent a quarter of a million dollars in the final weeks of the campaign to help get Angie Sapik elected, she might have some Trump tendencies, but I wonder if that money might make her think twice about going against the Speaker. So, All right. Well, uh, Sean, we did go in the Wayback Time Machine when you were here on this show four years ago, and you were. this was when Governor Evers was first elected, and you were making a prediction about what his relationship with the legislature might look like in his first term. And we're going to listen to what you had to say at that time. I would think on most issues, uh, they just won't work together. Like the governor will introduce stuff knowing that it's going to go nowhere in the, the legislature. They'll pass bills knowing that he's going to beat to them. I think there will just be a lot of that. If it's in the budget, there is potentially room for common ground. Um, when it comes to, to those things. So Evers talked about increasing education funding. Uh, at the end of the campaign, Walker was talking about two-thirds education funding. It, you know, all that, we'll have to see what it looks like in the light of revenue estimates in a few months and everything like that. But I think if it's in the budget, a bill that they sort of have accepted that they have to pass, there's room for compromise. You were you were pretty spot on with that prediction in terms of how you thought that relationship would look. Do you think anything will change in Governor Evers' second term in terms of his ability to find compromise with the legislature? Well, first, I just want to thank you for not playing one of my bad takes from four years ago, because <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty you could have chosen from. I think 
No, I don't think there's anything really that's going to change in terms of their relationship. It's not like Evers would look at these re uh, results and say, well, the voters sent me a message that they want me to, you know, come Republicans' way. He, he did the things he did for four years and uh, got a better result. I, and I think, you know, Robin Voss is not going to say, gosh, we need to, we need to come the governor's way now because, like, his majority didn't get any smaller. The map is more friendly. Uh, if anything, I think Republicans are going to feel potentially more adversarial now. Um, you know, it, given the nature of politics, it's not like we're getting friendlier <laughs> in our politics. So I kind of expect more of the same more for the, the next four years. We just replay years. that clip uh, just, for Just <laughs> bring that one out of the vault every so often, yeah. Sometimes a second-term governor has more confidence. Do you think that we'll see a potential Governor Evers veto of a budget that he doesn't like or maybe taking a more aggressive approach or do you think he'll be the first one to pick up the phone? I mean, there's a couple major things to look for. The, there was a big breakdown in communication between the governor and the legislature when back early in the first term, I think it was Senator Fitzgerald, and her, you know, Majority Leader and Speaker Voss, there was a recorded conversation between them. I, mean, I think that was overplayed by the Republicans but they used that sort of as an excuse to never really talk to the governor. Over the weekend, we heard from from the Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemieux saying basically that he's never had a sit down really with the governor. Um, but he did say he would pick up the phone now. But he did. So they are obviously making these overtures. I'm uh, skeptical, like Sean, that there's going to be any real uh, progress made on on communication. But the one big difference is that four years ago, Republicans may have felt like this was a fluke that. Governor Walker had a lot of baggage. He had run for president. He had Foxconn. He had just things that were maybe voters had soured on Governor Walker, but Tony Evers was a flash in the pan and would be gone in four years. That's not true, and we know that now. And so, yes, I think Tony Evers is stronger, and the, the Republicans are going to have to look at that and say, yeah, we got it. We've got to, this is, this is the way it's going to be. So, um, you know, does that mean that, you know, Fred Prenn's going to step down from the DNR board? I don't, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. We'll see. But that's another thing to watch for is what happens with appointments. appointments. And then the Supreme Court race in the spring is one of the biggest election deals in At Wisconsin April 4th, history. Right around the corner. So, you know, we can't we can't talk about what's gonna happen in the future without finally seeing what happens if, you know, again, if, if the Democrats can uh, win that election, have a candidate that they like win that election, that could have a huge impact on, on all these relationships. So so one thing that's different this time around, a $5 billion state budget surplus heading into state budget season. Do you think that having that $5 billion surplus on the table as they start budget negotiations makes things easier or harder in terms of kind of compromise? Well, I mean, I think if Republicans want to put another tax cut in the budget, they surely have, like, at least as the projections are right now, they have the money to do it. You know, could we head into a recession and things change? Possibly, yeah. But um, right now we have a projected surplus. So if that's something they want to prioritize without making big cuts to other areas of the state budget, they could do that. What have we seen in the past, you know, in the last budget, the current budget, when they sent the governor a big tax cut that some thought he might veto? He said, actually, okay, I'll sign that and I'll run on it when I run for governor. <laughs> so that could repeat itself potentially, um, I think the equation might be if they do that and um, what does a tax cut look like and do, do they leave the rest of state government kind of unscathed or uh, 
do they you know put the budget in shape where he feels like no I can't support that mm -hmm. Matt you reported on K-12 education for many years education looks like it's shaping up to be kind of the big budget battle wouldn't you say Right. So this has always been one of the, the tough things about Wisconsin politics is you've got Republicans who are very much invested in, in private school vouchers, um, and that's where they wanted to go. If, governor, if, if, it, if Tim Michaels had become the governor, we would have seen a major increase in expansion of the voucher program, I'm sure. Um, Tony Evers is the architect of a, of a whole overhaul of the state funding formula. Um, that, For public and, schools, yeah. And that's always been something that required a major, you know, you had to have a huge amount of money in, in, in the chest in order to make sure that, that when you reconfigured the um, formula, there weren't any, any losers uh, among the school districts, because that's the way to, the surefire way for it to not get the votes. Does this amount of money mean that they can come up with some kind of negotiated uh, improvement of our funding system, which has been broken for, for decades? Um, you know, you, you'd like to hope so, but... Uh, you know, if, if Republicans gonna, you say know. that change only happens if there's private school choice expansion right, exactly. on the table. Right. So that's that's it. I mean, that it's what kind of is there going to be a big compromise or is it just going to be this, just you know, that what they've been doing is they just keep putting money into this into just per pupil aid and, and you know, just kind of pushing kicking the, the can down the road. And so maybe that'll happen again. I, I can't really predict that. Uh, what do you think the biggest battle will be in the legislature and the budget? Will it be education? Is there some other issue you think? I think education, yeah, that would be at the top of the list. Um, and I think also just all the cultural war issues that have kind of, you know, centered on education recently. And, uh, you know, Republicans, the other thing, aside from universal school choice, which, you know, you can define different ways, but they talked about this, they wanted this parental bill of rights. Uh, and that is something that they passed last session that the governor vetoed, that Tim Michael said he would have signed. And, you think you we'll know, see that come back? That type of stuff, yeah, uh, in, in terms of giving parents, like, kind of more veto power over their, you know, the lessons that their kids are taught or, like, the ability to choose their kids' pronouns in school. I think you're going to see a lot of those debates coming up here over the next few years. You know, lots of speculation in this election about why there was so much crossover voting, while, why people who voted for Governor Evers, a Democrat, uh, then also voted maybe for Ron Johnson, a Republican. How do you explain that sort of crossover vote yep. to your readers? I, I've been saying for weeks before the election that this outcome was possible, and it's because I talked to people who are true ticket splitters. They don't want to vote straight ticket. They don't want you know, Republican Party steamrolling state government. And so when they know that the, these, gerry, again, these are gerrymandered maps, Republicans are going to control the legislature unless something changes, they vote for the Democratic governor because they want divided government. But then when they look at their ticket, maybe they also voted for Josh Call, but they get down to the you know, U.S. senator and they say, well, I'm, I'm not going to vote straight Democrat, so they vote for the Republican. And I, I, I don't know how many of those are out there. I think there's enough that it's part of the explanation for what happened on Tuesday. Would you agree with that? I, I think that part of the explanation is definitely that. I think part of the explanation is the people who won, you know, we kind of alluded to Evers having a brand and knowing what he's doing. Ron Johnson has a very different brand, but he also kind of knows what he's doing in terms of wanting these things. Um, you know, where t Tony Evers embraces boring, that has not been Ron Johnson's approach. Uh, he has not behaved like what you would think of as a traditional, like, swing state senator, where you just kind of walk a safe line, basically, and hope you'll be on the right side of a 50-50 election. He, in, you know, appeals to his base. Um, 
but he turns out the vote. You know, he had a lot of uh, a lot more Republican votes in places that he needed them, like the Wild Counties, than than Tim Michaels did, and so that was enough to put him on the winning side of a close election. But I kind of look at it as um, the candidates who are known commodities, also Ron Johnson and T- Tony Evers, also had more money, and the candidates who were running against them had less money and were more easily defined by those negative ads, and so. That could also be enough to swing it. You know, you mentioned earlier the the interesting uh, turnouts in Dane County and the Wow counties. Are, are there lessons for either party in this election that you, if you were going to consult, that you would say this is where I would look? Oh man, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to think about it in that way because I don't think anybody would want to hire me as a <laughs> consultant. But um, I think you would, you'd, if you're a Democrat, you have to like it's sort of a two-sided coin, to use a uh, cliche, I guess. Uh, we've talked about a lot over the last decade about how they're losing rural voters, you know, especially in light of Trump's 2016 victory. It just put a spotlight on that. Man, Democrats are not winning where they used to, but now look where they are winning. I mean, they're winning these populous counties. They're winning Dane. Um, they're, they've, they've always won Dane, but they're, the margins there are huge. Um, Waukesha County is the third most populous county in the state. That's a big vote center, and it's swinging in a big way toward Democrats. Um, you know, going down the line, Brown County, it's, it's swung a bit, you know, toward Democrats here uh, in this past election. And so they just have a lot to point to uh, in a race like this and say, that's a good thing. Pay I attention think, to those counties. I think probably Republicans may want to find a way to, you know, reclaim the suburbs a bit and uh, have some kind of a, a Dane County strategy. You know, you mentioned the Trump effect earlier. Do you think the Trump effect is still alive and well across all of Wisconsin? Is that something that um, Republicans need to be aware of as they're navigating? I think the Trump effect is very cultural. There, there are just a lot of people in rural areas who have a shared uh, cultural identity and that has brought them together um, in support of Donald Trump, but it may bring them together in, in support of another Republican candidate. Um, we'll, we'll see. 2024 is going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But do you um, think it's persistent? Um, I, th- I think those people are certainly energized now and uh, I, I just, I don't know. I have been I, for a while. Yeah, right. And I don't, I don't know that you know, if, if, if the Republicans, in order to win going forward, have to just continue to amp up that rural vote, that's a, I mean, these rural areas of our state are, are losing population. Um, they are not, uh, you know, over time, I mean, I, I, this is a little grim, but I mean, you think about where the, the higher death rates from COVID were, and like, there's just, this, that's not a winning strategy. They, I think Demo- the Democrats are going to do much better. Um, if if Republicans are going to rely on the rural votes, but I bring this back to gerrymandering. I mean, this is a big deal. You're going to hear about this issue in the Supreme Court race, and Republic. I mean, it's 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 kind of like it's it's not a secret anymore, right? Like you look at 50-50 state with 64 members of the Assembly, 22 members of the Senate, and it's going to get more and more uh, negative attention drawn to the Republicans. Um, so. I, I, I just I think they're going to try to have to find ways to appeal to those m- suburban voters um, because yeah I just don't think the rural vote is what they can reliably count on to to win statewide elections. Um, in the future. 
Well, just when we thought everyone was going to get a break, we're already hearing and seeing tweets and messages about April, April 4th, the next election for state Supreme Court in Wisconsin. What do you think we'll expect in that race? This is the big one of all these Supreme Court races that we cover. And we say, well, this is they're so important. There's only seven justices and they um, have a long way to they play a huge role in deciding whether uh, governor's agenda becomes law or legislatures or elections, you know, they have a huge uh, role to, in, you know, whether an election lawsuit goes forward. This is going to decide the ideological balance of the court. It's a conservative majority right now, 4-3. Of course, Brian Hagedorn, conservative uh, justice, will uh, often side with liberals. But this would give liberals a, a firm 4-3 majority on the court. And when you talk about what that means in terms of gerrymandering, uh, we know that in the federal court system, you can't bring a partisan gerrymandering lawsuit. The, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, no, that's not a thing you can do in federal court system. But in the state court system, I think uh, that is still an option. And there would be people who argue it's not an option, but I think that uh, the, a state Supreme Court with a 4-3 liberal majority would probably say, okay, we, we'll entertain that. And could say that the current map is an unconstitutional gerrymander. You expect a lot of record spending, more negative ads on our televisions in the coming months? Oh, it will definitely be the most expensive Supreme Court race in state history. It'll, I mean, millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars potentially. Um, it will be, uh, it, it could get nasty. I mean, there'll be primaries potentially on both sides, uh, and that's coming up even sooner, the primaries. Um, so, yeah, I, I should also mention we talked about gerrymandering, but abortion will also be on the ballot, I think, with that election. The Democrats will probably actually... be a actu referendum question? No, I think, well, it could be, but not statewide. But the Democrats are going to frame it that way. I, I, we've been talking a lot about gerrymandering, but I do think they're going to put abortion more front and center. I think both those issues will be out there, but I think they will be, t you know, this will be the election where that 19th century abortion law could be, you know declared unconstitutional as well if the liberals uh, control the courts after April. So. Yeah, the case that was filed by the Attorney General could wind its way to the court by then. Um, and so, absolutely, it could decide that. Next big story related to the election? Hmm. What I are mean, you covering? Uh, <laughs> I'm taking all the time off. I think, um, I mean, I think that, that April election is going to be a national story in a way and of huge import in Wisconsin. I mean, it's been like since 2008 was when Republicans flipped the court, and it's just been such a big part of their power, their political power in Wisconsin ever since. So, yeah, I think it's a big deal. Next big story for you? So I'm still looking at this gerrymandering issue, and uh, one stat I was going to bring up is that this election, there were only eight assembly races that were within 10 points, which is the second fewest going back 20 years. I mean, I was looking back to 2002. In the 2000s, the aughts, uh, there were 20, 25 contested races in Wisconsin Assembly that were 10 points or less, close races. Uh, last decade, you know, there was 2016, there were only seven. So it was, that's why this is the second fewest. But it was anywhere from seven to 15 in that, in that last decade. So this is the first election of this decade, and there were only eight really close races in the assembly. And I just think that, again, that's the effect of, of these maps, is you, you create these invincible partisan uh, politicians, and th the voters, I don't know that they're out crazy about that. So, 
Maps and Supreme Court. We'll keep our eye on those issues. Well, thank you both for the conversation today. Thank you. And thank you to the viewers of Newsmakers. Be sure to tune in again as we highlight the issues and sit down with the decision, decision makers who make a difference for all of us. This program was brought to you from the Margaret Farrell Studio. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civic broadcast network, providing gavel-to-gavel -gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol.